What is up, everybody? This is Ryan here from the Scale Up Show. Have an awesome guest on today. I'm Adam Sandman. Adam is the founder and CEO of Inflectra. Awesome story. He, he talks about how he originally started his company and as a lifestyle business, bootstrapped it, and then basically went from 1 million to 10 million in about five and a half, six years, which is really cool. Talks about how to be capital efficient right now. And then at the end, he talks about how they bought an event company that went bankrupt to create an entire community for him and his organization, which I absolutely love. was truly unique that no one's ever talked about before on this show. So you're not going to miss it. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Adam Salmon, who is the founder and CEO of Inflectra, a leading maker of software test management. Started programming games at 10, was previously a physicist, right, from the UK, has now been in the United States and DC. Adam, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here uh, on a hopefully not too snowy DC Chicago day. <laughs> yeah, we're in the middle of. So if you're if you're not watching this on YouTube, I got like the old um, I got the ugly Christmas sweater on. So you might want to check it out for that alone. We're not going to pan to outside our windows. There's like a polar vortex bomb that's happening where it's supposed to be like negative 30 degrees. Uh, anyways. So that's the context of what Adam's referring to at this point in time. So, Adam, just so we have everybody, uh, uh, the listener, basically some understanding of the context, let's do a real quick revenue rundown. So where are you guys at in terms of your stage of the journey for revenue? Uh, we're about 10 million, 10 million in ARR. Uh, we've been growing about 30, 35% year over year. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. And then what's your primary revenue growth go-to market strategy? Uh, primary to date has been inbound sales from search, search engine optimization, content marketing, webinars. We do a conference. Uh, we've been recently, in the last you know, 16, 17 months, building out a partner channel, which has started to bring in uh, extra revenue on top of what comes in direct. The one thing we haven't really done a lot of is direct outbound sales with SDRs, and we're looking to add an outsourced capability to that uh, in the new year. Awesome, man. Well, good stuff. And then how large is your team? Uh, about 50 people, um, mostly in the U.S., but we do have international customers, so we have an international presence. So we have pre-sales in, in every continent, and we have some tech support folks also in, in other continents as well okay. to support customers there. Excellent. That's a, that's a great ratio. You can tell you're, you're bootstrapped, right? I assume you're bootstrapped? That's correct. Yeah, you could tell if you have 50. If you were funded, you'd have like 150 people for that. <laughs> yes, and we'd probably be doing the, the outbound sales much earlier as well, I suspect. <laughs> it's true, man. So, and then can you walk us through your solution and like the outcome it, outcomes it creates in two or three sentences? Absolutely, yeah. Our primary solution is, is, is the Spira platform, which comes in three flavors, Spira test, team, and plan. It's a platform to help people deliver software with higher quality, faster, uh, and more efficiently. So it lets you basically manage software projects, uh, manage risks, manage the quality that goes with them, do the testing, track everything. And what we're also seeing now is when you do all that, you have to be able to prove to people you've done it. So you need to be able to show regulators, uh, people doing SOC 2 compliance, ISO. So it does all that testing for you and all that management for you, but then you can generate all the reports and compliance. So you can do audits in what would take maybe a week and maybe an hour. Oh, wow. From a week to an hour, that's a compelling uh, time ROI. So I think that's pretty sweet. Uh, and then, so real quick, let's go through your journey and just kind of how you got to this point, because that's a very unique solution that you have. And so I imagine, um, I, 
not a lot of little little boys wake up in the morning and they're like, hey, I, I want to create that, right? So <laughs> how, how did that happen for you? And what was kind of your journey along the way? That's a great, great question. And uh, the journey is interesting. It's really a journey of almost two parts. Because when I started the company, I was uh, a management consultant for a IT consulting firm doing work for then many of the US government, but I've been doing commercial work before for the US Navy in, in the DC area, which is why we're here. And we were doing a lot of complex software engineering, and we used to do testing of it. And those on the, on the on the podcast, I don't really like testing. As I was a project manager tasked with managing a testing team, I'm like, we're using spreadsheets, we're using Word docs. This sucks. So we found a solution that was good, but it was very expensive. It was very hard to use, and so I sort of bookended that. Kept on being a consultant, but I always thought it'd be great to have a better tool that will be usable, cost effective, and would optimize the software testing and quality process that everyone hates. So fast forward, left left the company Sapient, started the company part-time, and the first uh, eight years were actually more of a lifestyle business, doing it part-time, building the software, proving the model, uh, getting customers, and then about 2016, 17, uh, around about then, we decided, I want to grow this company. It's got some real legs. We're seeing changes in the market. A lot of our competitors are falling out. We've got some new capabilities coming in which are unique rather than just being a, a sort of a cost, uh, a cost-adjacent model. Uh, previously, we were selling as a cheaper version of what was existing. We now have some new capabilities that were unique, uh, particularly around the compliance and the, and the risk stuff that I mentioned earlier. And so we're like, we've got a unique chance to go for it. So we we didn't raise any money, but we you know used the money that we had and other resources that were, that were you know mine and, and family members and things, and doubled down and d- increased the team, got the growth rate up from what was previously like a ten percent lifestyle business to more of a 40 percent growth business. And that's sort of the phase two of the company's journey that started maybe five or six years ago. That's amazing, man. So how did you like, I think that that's, that's really cool that it sounds like you kind of had it, you said as a lifestyle business for eight years, and then you went after it. So how did you do that? Were you, you said part-time, were you, did you have another job? So did what you... happened? Yeah, what, that's, that's a great question. What I did is I, I started part-time because I was actually a stay-at-home dad. I had a two-year-old and a, and a six, seven-year-old, it would have been, uh, when I first started the company. So I was part-time for two years, and then I went full-time, had enough money coming in. Then I hired about three other people. So there were four of us running this lifestyle business that made good, good revenue, growing about 10 to 15%. But when we hit 2015 and 16, we saw a lot more opportunities, and we couldn't do it with the current team size. So that's when I said, let's use the money that we've accumulated plus our, our revenue and the annual profit, and let's use that money to make the team bigger. And the big things we were missing were dedicated sales. You know, as the founder and CEO with basically you know two other programmers and a tester, you're doing all the sales. So I was the sales engine myself. Now we have a head of marketing, but some salespeople, uh, build out a partner team. All of the revenue generating side that wasn't me was basically added after 2016. And then also the CTO, so I could not be also the semi-brains of the product. So those, that was really what enabled us to have that different journey. Okay, so that's pretty cool. So what what revenue number were you guys at roughly when you made that jump? Because I'm just I'm curious, like how? Uh, we were struggling to hit, to break through a million. So we're just under a million, about 800,000, I think. Wow, okay, so you went from a million to 10 over the last five years. That's, a, that's, that's awesome. Six, six, or seven, you know, six or seven, I think it's, it's roughly a little bit longer than that. Okay, wow. Six or seven, yeah, maybe my math's a little bit off. It was 2015 ish depending when yeah by 2015 we're about that number and then we're 2022 now okay fantastic so amazing growth that that you've kind of taken on and and done that i guess like one of the things that's really interesting from my perspective is when you made that shift how did you because you're if you're only around that a million mark like how did you create the cash necessary to make all the hires and, and changes and infrastructure changes 
that were required to really grow the next level. Right. Well, one thing is you as a founder have to decide you want to go for it. And when it's a lifestyle business, you know, you, you as the owner are making good money and that money's going to you. Um, the, the question is, you need to then reinvest more of that income. The second thing we did, which I think really helped us, was we also were able to license the IP of one of our products. So we had a product that was very useful through testing the test management tool, but there's other industries it could play in, which, we, which are more specialized. And we had a partner that was looking to actually white label it, eventually take the IP and resell it as a different product. So we were able to do an IP licensing deal over five years, and that gave us also a larger cash infusion that was more predictable to allow us to use that money to then build out those those people, and then use the growth to then give to the next people. But as a bootstrap business, as you say you're never you're not going out and hiring twenty people. You're basically layering it each year. You have to generate the income to, and you and we were just hiring just ahead of the income or just behind each year. So we have to be very careful. It's like a knife edge to make sure that you're not investing too fast, which when you've got an investment round and we're competing with people who have raised $20, $30 million of, of VC or not really growth equity. And you know, they're able to advertise four times on AdWords. They are you know, able to invest four or five times you know, per month than you are. So you have to be very careful because you're competing with these much more highly funded companies, but you know what your limits are. And also you have to be aggressive enough not to miss the opportunity but you mustn't be too aggressive or there won't be any, you won't be around to survive it. It's a very, you know, traumatic and can be quite nerve wracking experience for anyone who's doing oh, a yeah. uh, I mean, business. Well, here, to, to, I know you're not on the, the funding side, but to be on the other side of it, I, I've talked to a lot of founders or, or CEOs this year that have, are backed and they seem stressed out of their mind, right? Because like they hired up and now they had to like cut so many jobs and, uh, it's been really, really interesting just how the environment's changed in like 12 months. Right. We've tried to hire enough people that we, and we well, another thing that's really important for us is the company culture. And coming from Sapient, which did a really good job of building a company culture, uh, I was wanted to build a company where we had a very strong culture, which means you have an amazing team that really gels. But that means if you start having layoffs and you start to trim people, it has a much more disproportionate effect on the company's performance because it erodes that culture. And I saw it at Sapient when we had layoffs. It, it changed the company almost permanently. Certainly, it took many, many years to get back to the kind of culture the company had. So you have to be very mindful if you're going to hire someone, you want to make sure you absolutely, almost certainly can afford them at least for X number of months before you make that call, which I, I'm sure, I guess, if you're, if, you're, if you're funded, you're incented to hire and grow and spend. For us, we have to be very careful that we can afford to at least see a return on that within a year. Yeah, definitely. So when, when you did that big licensing deal, was that something pre-planned or did that just kind of happen organically? Um, it actually fell in our lap. We've been working with this company for a while. We've been we were good partners. We they'd white labeled one of our products, but they were limited by the fact that we were going in this direction with the product in our roadmap, and they were going over, wanted to go over this way, and it kind of fell in our lap because we. And as I'm sure you can imagine, we've been talking to investors, and we'd always been a little bit leery because we'd seen a lot of our competitors, uh, particularly in the six or seven million, five six seven million dollar range that we were then. Though, well, actually, last even then, uh, you know, they were they were basically rolled up into these large companies. I won't mention any of the names, but they just get rolled up into these large companies, and then they lose their focus, they lose the direction, the team is gone, and the product doesn't have its cohesiveness. So we didn't want to do that. So we obviously we were, we were looking at potentially doing that if we needed to. And then when this came around, sort of opportunistically, it was a nice alternative that gave us the the the, the cash to be able to do that growth, but also we didn't have to give any any equity. It's simply licensing revenue. Excellent, ma'am.
Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter. Check out other free content resources I have there. And let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. Congrats to you for, uh, obviously, luck is a dividend of hard work. So clearly you're doing a lot of things right for that to happen and you create kind of that, I don't know, customer, customer-based customer funding, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess looking forward, you know, capital efficient growth is like one of the sexy terms now that everybody's looking at for, for 2023. <laughs> you know, based on the fact that you've been doing this for the last six years, effectively almost six years mm-hmm. now, right? seven years uh, and even longer, like what's your strategy and like, how do you execute that for your organization kind of moving forward in terms of like allocation of funds towards R and D and other areas in, in your, your company? That's a great thing. What we do every year, and we did it this year in, in November, October timeframe is we'll look at, we build out a giant Excel model. And what we do is because we're a SaaS company and we're SaaS, not just in terms of the uh, the, 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 the revenue is mostly is, is SaaS and it's all subscription-based. We do have customers that have a downloadable on-premise product, but it's still SaaS licensing. So we can take that, look at the you know, number of you know, customers we have, look at this year's sales, sales numbers, look at the churn rate from last year, maybe add a risk premium because we are entering a recession. We can also look at the price rise we're going to be implementing in January. Um, so we pull into this model and using that, we can basically give ourselves a high, medium and low estimate of where we think revenue is going to land. Uh, you know, if we do just as much as we did this year, but we have higher churn, we keep the customers we have, they renew at these rates, put that into the model, come up with the three numbers. And then from an expense standpoint, we'll look at those ranges and depending where we feel the year is going to end up, are we likely to be medium, high or low? We will look at what last year's expenses were, you know, what we know is going to go up, all the marketing programs we're doing, all the hires we want to do or not do. And then we'll use that to come up with a, you know, if we hit by end of Q1, this number, it looks like we're on the medium trajectory versus the high trajectory. So usually things that are fixed, like the AdWords and the Amazon, AWS, all that stuff is sort of baked in. And then we have a bunch of optional programs, whether it's a marketing program, or it's going to be an R&D hire to do development, or it's going to be a partner person or a pre-sales and whatever it is, they're all in this cat in the, in the model. And we say, if we hit this number by end of Q1, and it looks like the trajectory is continuing, and therefore we're going to be X percent over last year for that quarter, we might turn on that that fee, almost like a feature. We'll turn on that higher. If, on the other hand, we're not paying that number, we'll be like, well, let's be conserved and wait to Q2 and maybe do that. So it's very much a, a model with three low, medium, and high, and then factoring in the expenses and so on based on where we look like we're heading in that model. That's good, man. And I love the integrity check in, at the end of Q1, too, just to kind of see how you're pacing and, and do that. So is your is your solution like what what would you classify it as in terms of like a ACV lever? Is it is it more of a product led growth model? Is it um, or how where does it fall in terms present that's relative? Yeah, it's interesting. It's when we when we sell the product, we it's it's based by number of concurrent users. So we'll try and get in with a sort of land and expand model. That's our sales strategy. Find a team that wants to use the product. Uh, with a standard pre sales, you know, discovery call demo, classic sales process. Uh, from the from the marketing qualified leads that come in from our online channels, uh, walk them through that life cycle. Within 90 days, hopefully they'll, they'll buy the product. Large customers could take one to two years. We've got large enterprise customers take that long. And then we have an upsell expansion program, uh, which is human-driven through customer success. So it's customer success-driven. There is product-led growth, two avenues in the tool. One is when they hit the license cap, they're using more using it more than they want to. They get warned. There's also feature and feature enablement that they can turn on um, 
So if they, they're using Spira Test, which is the lower end flavor, and they want to see a, a section of the app they want to use, they have a little padlock, they can click on it and see what it would do. Now, the one challenge we have as a company, which may not be for other, customers, other people on this podcast, is that we're selling a lot to regulated industries. So we don't sell as much by credit card as a lot of SMB type players would do. Most of our customers are medium size or teams in large companies. I mean, so Fortune 500 te- teams in Fortune 500, Fortune 500 companies or medium-sized companies, we're not selling a lot to small companies. Therefore, most times they're using purchase orders. They are using credit cards for some of these buys, but it's not, therefore, as easy to upsell through PLG because they can't just simply see a box they want to click on, hit a button, and add that feature and pay for it. We have to incent them to use that feature by some you know, video they go to, and then they have to get their purchasing department to do it. So PLG is in the, in the mix, but it's driven a large part by customer success just because of the customer segment size. They tend to be people who are more... I don't know about conservative, but more process-driven when they're buying software. And we have their data in our system. We have PHI potentially for some of our healthcare clients. We certainly have PII. We do that a lot in Europe. So every purchase requires a lot of risk sign-off and IT security sign-off. So the paperwork trail is just increasing. Two years ago, I would say after they decided they'd buy it, within 30 days they'd buy it. Now it could be 60 to 90 days after the decision maker said yes, just getting through all the IT hurdles uh, and the risk management hurdles and so on. So that means that we have to factor that in both on the sale and if we're going to expand to other teams and cross-sell and upsell, those other teams may also have to do some of those same uh, discussions internally. So it, it does, it's an interesting model. We have, we have yeah, that makes, it's, it makes sense. And most people ignore the lever of time when they're looking at the sales process. They look at conversions, they look at deal size, they look at leads. Mm-hmm. But you, know, you just kind of indicated like to have a sales process you know, lengthen by 30 to 60 days just because of the new process that that's painful, right? That's painful your bottom line because you run out of runway by the end of the right, year. Right, right. The, right, the, it's, the, it's the cybersecurity runway that we're just seeing across the industry because of all the cyber hacks. Everything's more uh, conservative and, and risk averse. The positive is that what I would say is if you, once you're into a client with that kind of environment, your stickiness is much higher. You've got all their data. They've already vetted you. They'd much rather have another team yours, use your tool than have to bring a second tool in that's similar because they've got to go through that whole process again. So it's hard to get these deals in, but once you're in, especially on the larger clients, you can farm them with a, with a you know, customer success function and grow from within and use that to actually grow within, knowing that they won't be able to look at other tools so easily. Exactly. No, that makes sense. So, so Adam, we're, we're getting close on time. Okay. I, I guess a couple of key questions to close in. Zhao, what would you say is your single biggest strategy or best strategy for growing your business? The single best strategy has been, in many ways, um, customer customer experience driven sales. Meaning that we haven't done a lot of, we've not done any outbound sales, and people are surprised when we tell them that. We did try it years ago and it failed. Having people experience the product, our support team, our pre sales team, which they're going to work with after after purchase, having the experience the, the, from their day of using the tool from day one to be the same and be amazing. That and then having them then advocate to us to other people. We've had clients that will go from company to company every year. Testers are often freelancers, so they'll often move jobs and they'll bring us to every company they work for. So we have this incredibly sticky, loyal sort of fan base, which has driven a lot of our sales. We've got one person in, in Switzerland who's basically moved from five companies this year just advocating the product. So our partner and our, our enthusiast network has been our strength. I would say one of the things we're not haven't done as well is making a systemic move into that area. And that's why with the partner program we launched 18 months ago, that's an area to turn what was, I think, a ad hoc benefit and way we've grown the company into a systemic way of growing the company and doing it in a much more proactive systemic way rather than relying on the enthusiasts who you kind of meet along the way. Uh, but I'd definitely customer experience driven, 
rather than trying to sell you on the product. It's how do we help your journey with the product be such, such a great one that you're selling yourself and selling your colleagues as part of that journey. So, and I think that's amazing, right? And that's, that's a key that I see a lot of great companies doing. But like, so how do you do that? Like, how do you engineer such a great customer experience process that they, uh, you know, systematically refer people, not systematically, but excitedly refer people into you? What do you do for that? What's your framework? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, one of the things is, is user-centered design. Make sure the product itself, when you first use the product, it and it's a complex product. It's not, it's, you know, it's a complex tool for managing quality, but making it onboard the user, make them feel that it's going to walk them through. Have videos, have documentation, have someone call them within their first couple of days. Avoiding this sort of typical sales language, that's definitely been a huge part of it is just that engagement they get at the beginning so that they understand how to use it. They don't feel like there's any problems. And then the transparency, pricing transparency, it's all on the website, which in our segment is not as common. I know it is for some other segments. Um, making sure that when they interact with our support team, it's not like, who are you? Why are you bothering us? Making sure the support team is not a bunch of outsourced support people. Uh, our support team, in many cases, are people who work on the product as well. We They split the time. So the, their support experience is as good as their pre-sales experience. Um, and that's often overlooked by companies. They do they get the cheapest support possible, but that's who your ambassadors. Um, so the framework is basically walking them through a 30-day kind of a journey and then letting them, letting them do a POC, helping them with a POC, bringing in a partner if they need consulting help. With some of these big companies, the product isn't the problem. It's their process, their internal teams not being aligned. So we have a partner function where we'll bring a partner into pre-sales where it makes sense, but it doesn't always make sense. So knowing when to do that. Um, and I think one of the things we've done internally to really help this is having a physical offsite every year. We brought all our teams together and we partner teams, development team, support team, all physically together for a week, which is ex- expensive because it's from other countries. But the alignment and, the, and the, the, the quality we got from doing that has really helped because now the support team and sales teams understand each other's worlds. And so when a su- support person is being referred to a client from sales, the salesperson isn't worried. What are they going to do to my client? Are they going to actually help them or tell them it's not my job? And that, I think, is the problem. Disconnects between sales support, partnerships, and customer success will kill any organization. Excellent, man. So what would you say is your single biggest challenge right now in terms of growing? Single biggest challenge is the one that's been the biggest challenge the whole way through. It's branding. It's brand awareness. The, and that's why I say we've got a great product because what happens is people will say to us, oh, we found your product online. We looked at your listicle. We found you on Google. I'd never heard of you before. You know, why haven't I heard of your product before? I wish I'd used you X years ago. We go to a trade show. You know, we th- and you can spend as much money as you want in marketing and, and branding and advertising and, and all of these different things. And because we're still a relatively small company versus some of the companies that we compete with, which are maybe 10 to 20 times bigger than us, um, it's just that frustration with if they is that we're, we're oftentimes not their first one. They'll look at two or three big companies first and then look at us. And that is sometimes hard because you know we have a great product, we have a great experience, and they would love to use the tool. And when they do see it, they, they get there. So the biggest challenge, I think, starts is still brand awareness and doing it in a cost-efficient way, which is um, interesting. When some big project management tools will literally put their adverts on the side of buses or, you know, you may have seen them and, or in airports, and it's just blanket advertising. And, and what we're interesting is we're seeing some of that drop off now because of the funding challenges that you mentioned in the private equity world. So as that stuff, that blanket advertising drops off, it's actually opening up space for some of the smaller players like us to actually break through the noise uh, online and, and build the brand. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, attention is the new oil, right? So like right. when you go back to Naval Ravikant's points of leverage, I, I think one of them that's really, really strong that I see some SaaS companies embrace it, some don't. And I'd be curious if you do or not, but 
you got what? You got people, capital, code, and then you got media, right? right. So a lot of SaaS companies are starting to try to become media companies as well. Which, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, we haven't tried. <laughs> we, we haven't tried it. We did some videos. We've done some production work. Uh, we have a good marketing presence. We do great visuals. We always pride ourselves in high quality. Uh, if it's artwork, if it's if it's uh, booths, podcasts, everything we do is of the highest visual quality. Video, video production is something we've not done just because I think the cost of doing it well. We don't want to do a bad job with some bad, you know, cartoony animations online that we've seen. So anything we do, we want to do it well. So we haven't become a media company. What we have actually become is a conference company, a trade show company. So what we found is we were advertising a lot of trade shows. And one of our trade shows we actually used to go to went bankrupt during the pandemic. And we hired someone from there to be our, one of our pre-sales people who's awesome. But we also managed to acquire the entire conference for free. Uh, and we've basically turned it into our company conference and we're doing thought leadership having speakers coming. And so for a way to build the brand in a more cost-effective way, we're actually running an annual trade show, which attracts people who would normally go to the trade shows we would have sponsored at. But now we're controlling the message, controlling the medium. Um, and that's been a great way to differentiate ourselves, I think, get us above the noise of the online channel while still doing everything on LinkedIn to p- promote this event. But it gets us to have speakers and industry thought leaders promoting our event for us on LinkedIn because they're speaking at the event. So it's a creative way for us not to become a media company, but to become, I think, a thought leadership and co- almost a conference information company, uh, which we wouldn't have been maybe three years ago. Excellent, man. Well, that's I love that. That's a it's a really creative approach to acquire a conference company that went bankrupt <laughs> and uh, turn it into your own. So I think that's fantastic, man. Highly creative. So Thanks. we are unfortunately up on time, though, Adam. Where can people find you? Where can they find more about Aflectra? And then we'll we'll wrap it up. Um, the website is inflectra.com uh, on LinkedIn. Obviously, Inflectra. Adam Mark Saruman is my uh, Twitter handle for as long as Twitter's around. Just kidding. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I must say I'm on LinkedIn more these days than Twitter. And I haven't yet checked out Mastodon. Maybe I will. Uh, but yeah, the website, LinkedIn, is the other best places to get hold of me. Or come to our InflectraCon show in D.C. in April. Um, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, you know, ping me on LinkedIn. I was happy to meet up fellow entrepreneurs, CEOs, tech execs, and anyone else who's in our industry. Awesome. Well, Adam, it was a pleasure having you on the show, man. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. Have a great holiday yourself and everyone else who's listening. You too, man. And everybody else who's listening, have a great holiday, even though this will be published after the holidays, right? Ah, sorry. But that was all good, man. We'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue and growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.